This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The Olympics start tonight amid plenty of anticipation for the almost two dozen Colorado athletes set to compete. Denver Post Olympics writer John Meyer joins me to talk about who to watch out for and about some of the controversies surrounding these summer games. John, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. Heading into the London Games four years ago, much of the Olympic buzz was about swimmer Missy Franklin from Regis Jesuit High School in Aurora. And she didn't disappoint, winning five medals, including four gold. John, heading into Rio this year, what Colorado are you envisioning having a breakout performance? There's a woman named Adeline Gray. Her father is a Denver policeman. She has won uh, three gold medals at world championships in wrestling. Now, women's wrestling has only been in the Olympics since 2004, but she is favored by virtue of being a three-time world champion to win her weight class in wrestling at these games. No American woman has won a gold medal in wrestling at the Olympics. So she has a chance to make history and be the first American woman to win a wrestling gold medal. She's fun. She's feisty. She's got plenty of personality. She finds a way and talks about being a wrestler but also being feminine. If she wins a gold medal, I see her on the Today Show, on the Tonight Show. I think she will be a breakout star. And here's a clip of Adeline Gray from an interview we did a few weeks ago on Colorado Matters. I think that I'm doing something special out here on the wrestling mat for for not just female wrestlers and and for wrestling in general, but for women in in sports. And I think it's really um, kind of those highlight names right now. You have, you know, the Williams sisters, you have some of those soccer stars. And I think the next name you're going to be hearing is mine, Adeline Gray. You think Gray is going to headline an impressive group of female athletes from Colorado. Who are some of the others you can tell me about? Well, I always go to Jenny Simpson and Emma Coburn, uh, former CU runners. For Jenny, this is her third Olympics. For Emma, this is her second Olympics. Both of them ran their first Olympics while they were still CU students. Hmm. Jenny in 2008, Emma in 2012. Their training partners, they run different events. And Jenny could be very much a favorite to win a medal in these games. She's arguably the best 1,500 meter for the U.S. ever. And so she's definitely someone to watch. Emma Coburn is in the steeplechase. It's a really interesting event. Lots of personality. Great on camera. I think Coloradans are going to love them, too. And and we can't forget, of course, Mallory Pugh, the soccer star that's uh, rising up uh, there. Uh, We also have to talk about Carol Winger in Javelin uh, as well. So this is going to be dominated possibly by Colorado women. Now, there are plenty of men, too. But but I guess I would say the biggest names on the Colorado Olympic contingent are females. John, rugby is returning to the games for the first time since 1924, uh, and we have two Coloradans playing rugby, uh, Ben Pinkelman from Cherry Creek High School. But tell us about Jillian Potter. Well, she's the captain of the women's team, and she's got, as you can imagine, as being a captain, she's a leader. She's, she's got a lot of passion for her sport, and, she's, and she radiates that passion when you speak to her. But she's also got an amazing backstory. Hmm. She once broke her neck in a rugby match and came back from that only to fall victim to a really difficult stage three cancer, which she also beat. 
when she was getting her cancer treatments, she would go for walks on the on the grounds of where she was getting her chemo, and she would put a rugby U.S. rugby jersey on her pole that held her her medicine, um, her like medicine her exactly. IV pole, yeah. So uh, she's really going to be fun for people to get to know. Uh, who are some of the possible male medalists in Rio this year? Well, first of all, we need to talk about Boris Berrien. That's such an interesting story. He grew up in Colorado Springs. He went to Adams State down in Alamosa. He left Adams State. He got a job at McDonald's, and then he got into a training group, which has allowed him to flourish. And he he won a gold medal at the World Indoor Championships this year in the 800 meters, one of the most painful events in track and field because because of the distance, because it's almost an all-out sprint for 800 meters. Taylor Finney, we really need to watch. Of course, people remember him from his, his parents who were, who were cyclists a generation ago. He also came back from a horrific broken leg a couple of years ago that could have easily ended his career. But he's definitely going to be someone to be watching. And I also want to mention Mason Finley. I don't know if he's a medal contender, but people will remember him if they are longtime followers of Colorado sports because he went to Buena Vista High School up in the mountains, and he just did amazing things with the shot put and the discus, and he set a, a national high school record while he was there. I want to get back to Missy Franklin. We mentioned her a bit earlier. Her performance since London has been pretty uneven, uh, and she's been overtaken in the eyes of many by another young swimmer, Katie Ledecky. Uh, what's happened with Missy? We know some things that have happened with her. She had a great London Olympics. Pe- people also forget she had an even better world championships in 2013 where she won five medal- five gold medals. Two years ago at the most important event in swimming, it's called the Pan Pacific Championships. In, it was in Australia. A couple of days before the event, she got into a backstroke start, which puts you in a, very much coiled on the side of the pool. And you push and off really hard, right? And explode yeah. off, yes. And she experienced extreme, extremely painful back spasms that almost incapac- well, it, it incapacitated her. She spent a couple of days in therapy and PT to try to open that up. And she was able to compete at those world championships, but not as well as she has in the past. Everyone around Team Missy say, says the back is not a problem anymore, that, that they've controlled it through PT. Well, one of the things that her parents discussed with me was that they believe that they, in fact, it has to be, the back situation is in the back of her mind. Even though she's not experiencing any back trouble, there's always a little fear of if, if she gets into that backstroke start and experiences spasms again, then what happens? And and do you explode off that the side of the pool and have it go on you? Because frankly, everyone around Team Missy says her starts, particularly in the backstroke, were horrible. The other theory is that she was a 17-year-old girl in London. She had a 17, she had a teenager's body. No. Now she's a 21-year-old woman. She Her hips are fuller. She's changed. And she's still learning how to adapt to that. At least that's one of the theories out there. You know, Missy is always so bubbly whenever you see her on television, the interviews. How do you think she's going to deal with this potential adversity in Rio? Is she going to remain bubbly or are you going to see her kind of go into herself and really uh, kind of pull away from maybe that that bubbliness that we've, we've come to know? That's a really interesting question because I spoke to Rowdy Gaines, who's a former Olympian in swimming and works for NBC. And I asked him, we had a long talk about Missy. And one of the things he said was, 
I would like to see her feel free to be emotional. Mm. She comes out, she's, she's struggling through adversity, and yet she's still the bubbly, smiley, waving, blowing kisses Missy. And he wants her to think that, to know that it's okay to cry. It's okay to be upset. It's okay to be mad when, when, when you, when you don't achieve what you're trying to achieve. But I'm not sure that that's Missy. I don't think that she'll, that she'll ever do that. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with John Meyer, who's covering the Olympic Games for the Denver Post. You can find Colorado Matters stories and some of the athletes we're talking about at CPRnews.org. Let's move on now to some of the bigger stories of the Rio Games, one of which is Russia. There's been a doping scandal in which athletes from numerous sports tested positive for banned substances seemingly under government supervision, and there were calls to kick Russia out of the Games entirely. Where do you stand? I believe it would be unfortunate if innocent athletes have to pay the price for the doping that's gone on in Russia that's been proven. But at the same time, I think it's important to send a very strong message to to not only Russia, but every country about the importance of anti-doping measures, particularly because in the case of Russia, it's not just massive doping. It's massive doping, state-supported, state-run, including state security people uh, protecting the cheaters as they were mishandling the doping samples for so in the Sochi Olympics. This is clearly the most massive state-supported doping program in history with the possible exception of East Germany in the 1970s. The only way anti-doping measures will work, because, because it's part of humanity that there will always be cheaters, the only way for anti-doping measures to work is for there to be enough of a deterrent that even people who are inclined to cheat, who have no morality but are inclined to cheat, will say, I can't get away with it anymore, or I can't run the risk that I may be found out. So I'm going to have to be clean whether I want to or not. The other overriding concern in Rio is safety, uh, whether it's the Zika virus. There's a great deal of trepidation about the infrastructure. Is that a valid concern? I'm quite concerned, actually. I'm not personally concerned about Zika because I'm not going to be pregnant anytime soon. Neither is my wife. I'm in my 60s. We were done with that. Uh, and I'm told that for Zika, and this is from my doctor, 70% of the people who come down with the Zika virus never even know they had it. If they do, it's kind of like a low-grade fever, uh, flu. So I'm not worried about that, but I'm very worried about crime. I'm very worried about the possibility of terrorism. I, I shouldn't say very worried. I'm worried about the possibility of terrorism because I felt safe in Beijing. You know, dictatorial, tyrannical governments are bad, but there, there is one benefit. You can feel safe. You, there was no way China was going to allow terrorism in Beijing. Same went for Sochi. London, I was a little more concerned, but because it's such a prime target for terrorism, but also I had a lot of faith in the anti-terrorism forces there and intelligence. I don't know what to make of what we're, what those kinds of efforts are, the quality of anti-terrorism and intelligence in Brazil. I know that that Americans are behind the scenes down there helping from our intelligence community, 
Could this be the end of the Olympic Games as we know it with the high cost and concerns over safety and things like that? I'm very confident that the Olympic movement will go on because the Olympics are about more than entertainment. To me, the Olympics, it's a factory that manufactures hope and inspiration for the world. We get to see people conquer adversity, conquer pain, strive to be their best, and achieve great things, and then inspire the world with that. Now, I realize that is hopelessly idealistic. Some would even say naive. But I believe that stuff. And I believe it's important for the world. John, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. It was great. John Meyer will be covering the Olympic Games for the Denver Post. You can find Colorado Matters stories on some of the Colorado athletes competing in Rio at CPRnews.org. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The Animas River in southwest Colorado turned a milky yellow one year ago today after it was contaminated with mercury and arsenic released from the abandoned Gold King Mine during an EPA cleanup mishap. Work at that site continues and may extend to dozens of mines in the area, but that would still leave thousands in the west that continue to pollute waterways. Efforts to find money and a plan to clean them up have failed for decades, and we'll hear more about that in a moment. First, CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood shows us what the site of last summer's spill looks like now. One year later, there's still a lot of contaminated water gushing out of the Gold King mine. But last fall, the EPA built a treatment plant to clean the water and send it back into the stream. 500 gallons a minute is what we're currently seeing coming from the Gold King mine. It's a bit of an increase, as, as you might expect, with all the spring melting in the area. 500 gallons a minute is a lot, but the EPA's Joyelle Dieu says this is only one of several abandoned mines in the area. Some have been discharging the same kind of toxic water for decades. In fact, that's why the EPA was working at the Gold King mine last August when it triggered an accident. But none of the contaminated water from those mines is being treated. It's what prompted the local government here to apply for a Superfund listing this spring. There was a lot of sleepless nights. Willie Tukey is an administrator for San Juan County. For more than a decade, the government here shied away from Superfund status. The two biggest concerns? It would cause a drop in property values and a drop in tourism. But Tukey says intense negotiations with the EPA over this past year led to new confidence and assurances. Because of the circumstances, I think we, we were able to get these answers that we weren't able to before. Answers for EPA critics and Republican lawmakers have been more elusive. The agency accepted full responsibility for the August 2015 spill. And samples show that water quality in Colorado and New Mexico has returned to pre-spill conditions. But critics point out that no one within the EPA has been punished, although the EPA's Office of Inspector General says that it, along with the U.S. Department of Justice, is conducting a criminal probe. And the agency has provided some compensation for damages to states and communities. But the state of New Mexico says it's not enough. It's suing the agency for millions. It's also suing Colorado for alleged errors managing the mine. Meantime, the country hasn't made much progress on fixing abandoned mines across the West. There are still tens of thousands of those throughout the country that still need attention. Doug Young is a senior analyst at Denver-based Keystone Center, which searches for solutions on questions of science and public policy. He says two key obstacles are funding and legal accountability. My original hope was that after the Gold King spill, it might 
cause people to rethink um, how we might be able to come up with a solution. Historically, Young says Congress has considered two fixes, Good Samaritan legislation to reduce liability and spur more volunteer cleanups, and a reclamation fee for hard rock mining companies. But several Good Samaritan bills in Congress seem to be going nowhere, and the proposed fee is even more of a non-starter. What we've seen, I think, is a, is a going back to the and resurrecting some of these old concepts that haven't received wide support. And as a result, I think we're seeing it get bogged down again in those same debates. Young says because of the stalemate, the Keystone Center is trying to gain support for a new approach, using the Superfund program, but not calling the cleanup Superfund sites, which can bring political and economic baggage. In spite of the gridlock, he's convinced an answer will emerge. The leaking tainted water from these mines will become more valuable with drought and climate change. And when that reaches a crisis point, lawmakers will have no choice but to find a solution. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Let's talk more now with Doug Young of the Keystone Policy Center, who you heard in Grace's piece. Welcome, Doug. Thanks for having me. Why are there so many abandoned mines that continue to pose potential environmental risks? Well, what we're talking about here are these old historic mining sites that people are no longer uh, mining. So they're now no longer producing or developing or prospecting or drilling into these sites. These were old areas under the old regime of trying to encourage people to come and settle and develop our mineral resources in the West. And the main law governing mining was passed in 1872 and hasn't really been updated since in any significant way, right? Well, I would say that's true. However, since the passage of the 1872 general mining law, which was sort of a compilation of other kind of best practices or the practices they were doing at the time, um, just you know, out of the out of the course and the culture of how they mined. But since that time, there have been statutes, environmental statutes that have been passed. So if you're currently doing mining, um, then you do have to comply with the 1872 mining law with some respect in terms of how you patent, how you make a claim, mm-hmm. but how you operate that mining operation is still covered by the environmental statutes that we have on the books today. And I, I, you know, in terms of that 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 law, you know, it, it really hard rock mining companies to extract minerals like gold, silver, iron, they don't have to pay a royalty fee to the government uh, when they extract minerals. And without collecting a fee, the government doesn't have money dedicated to cleaning up old mines since they're abandoned, right? That's true. I I, sh- I should just say that there I- there is federal money that does get applied to do cleanup work. It's very little. Okay. Um, it's not like what you would get if there were a royalty. As you mentioned, when when people are developing fossil fuels, oil, gas, or coal, there that law is called the Mineral Leasing Act, and there is a royalty that's assessed to anybody that is to develop those minerals. I it's see. about twelve percent, twelve point five percent. With regard to hard rock mining, the 1872 mining law, you are correct. There, There is not a royalty that's assessed for the development of gold, silver, platinum, molybdenum. And for that reason, there hasn't been established a reclamation fund to the degree that fossil fuels have. Now, you've been working for about 25 years to find funding and a plan to clean up these old mines in the West. You've worked for Colorado Governors Roy Romer and John Hickenlooper, Senator Mark Udall. Now you work at the Keystone Policy Center, which brings people together on various sides of complicated issues to try to find solutions. We asked you before the show when the last spill on the magnitude of Gold King occurred, and it's been quite a while. So I wonder, how big of a deal is this, that these mines are leaking? Why do you see it as such an urgent concern? Well, 
it's it's urgent certainly to the people who live up in these watersheds um folks like who live in Silverton and Durango it's an important issue for them who live directly in the in the path of these but as we develop in the west as we see more settlement and as we deal with more water scarcity these water sources become more and more critical not only for us as humans but also for the natural environment uh, the riparian the, the, you know the animals and, and sure. biology that live along the water courses so it i think it behooves us to deal with this polluting problem so that we can have more water options, more flexibility with regard to our water needs. So in essence, the, the water is becoming much more valuable now. Correct. You said in Grace's story that you hoped the Gold King mine spill would bring change more quickly. But but the issue really hasn't been ignored that several members of Congress from Colorado and elsewhere have proposed new legislation in the past year. Why aren't those efforts encouraging to you? Yeah, for me, um, they are encouraging. So I don't want to, I'm not trying to I mean, I think that's a very good sign that we're still seeing interest in Congress to try to fix this problem. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. For me, this issue started way back in nineteen in the early nineties. Um, there actually, it's this whole issue began in Colorado. The, the idea of creating a Good Samaritan program started here. There was a group called Volunteers for Outdoor Colorado, which is a, a group that does volunteer work to uh, enhance our public lands, and they were working on a site, a mine site in Summit County called the Pennsylvania Mine to try to deal with the outflow of contaminated waters. They would create a wetlands and when you that's called a passive treatment and when you do that you can you can clean up the water that way. But the EPA came in and told them, "Look, you 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 folks as you're doing this, you may be responsible for forever." And so they literally stopped work. And so that began, that was the impetus behind this idea of good samaritan where we want to encourage volunteers who have no responsibility of creating that pollution in the first place. We want to encourage them to come in and do to improve the situation. So how did Good Samaritans the, this fit into the Clean Water Act, which does kind of oversee some of this, the, this these abandoned mines? Yeah, the, the, I will tell you that the EPA has tried administratively to encourage this as well by, by doing things administratively. But I think a lot of people will tell you, including me, that we really need to do an amendment to our statutes. The Clean Water Act is an amazingly effective statute. It has done wonders to clean up our waters. But it really isn't well equipped for this particular situation because under the Clean Water Act, you have to. You, it's easy when you have an identifiable, identifiable person who is polluting, so they have to get a permit. If you've got a situation like Good Sam where you can't find somebody who's doing it, it's just an old tunnel, then there isn't somebody you can grab and say you are required to stop this and get a permit. So what we've been trying to do under Good Samaritan is create a new program within the Clean Water Act that would apply to this particular situation. Abandoned mines. Abandoned hard rock mines. We are also thinking about including coal as well um, because it does have the similar situation. I've heard there is this uh, concern about the Good Samaritan law. You know, environmentalists are concerned since they don't want to compromise what they see as as a hallmark environmental law, the Clean Water Act. But, but what does the mining industry think about the Good Samaritan law? Well, uh, the mining industry is is supportive of a Good Samaritan uh, concept. The issue for them has been to address a whole host of other issues that are included with the cleanup of abandoned mines. They, I think they're interested in doing it. But there also is concern for them about assessing a royalty or a fee that would go along with that. 
Um, and they also are interested in doing what's called remining so that it, for, there may be still residual mineral uh, resources within these old mines because the techniques they used back then were different than they are today and they can grab some more of that resource. So they can clean up the mine, then find minerals, say, hey, we want these minerals and be allowed to, to mine those. Correct. And, but their purpose, their primary reason for doing it would be to clean it up. And if they find some additional minerals, they could recoup that. When I was working for Mark Udall, we would require that that the recouping of that, at, you know, uh, revenue from the from those minerals would have to be used to the cleanup of that particular mine, or for a future abandoned mine. So we tried to say, look, you can you can recoup that value, but you have to plow it back into additional cleanups of abandoned mines. So there are some reasons establishing a good Samaritan law haven't been successful and you're weary of current legislation. So what's the deal? Yeah. So <laughs> so because of Gold King, it wasn't just me, but others who have been doing this for a long time had realized that since 93, essentially since I started working on it, we have not been successful in passing an amendment to the Clean Water Act for a whole host of reasons. Um, it's just, as you mentioned, it's, it's a sacrosanct statute. And when you open the door to do changes to that, it could open the door to all kinds of other issues that are now currently in controversy around the Clean Water Act. Well, could there be the sense of the environmentalists saying these mines could just come in saying, hey, we're good Samaritans, but they're really looking for new minerals? That's right. Well, you want to make sure that what if you create a program that you make sure that it's created in a way that you don't have people abusing it. So there, there was always an interest in doing that. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Doug Young of the Keystone Policy Center on the one-year anniversary of the Gold King mine spill in southwest Colorado. Doug, the Justice Department and the EPA's inspector general are both looking into possible criminal charges in the case of the Gold King mine spill. Prosecutors could actually criminally charge people at the EPA for negligence because the spill was triggered by a crew contracted to clean up the mine. And that's unusual when it comes to environmental laws. Most of them, don't they just offer the possibility of civil penalties like fines? Yes, that's correct. There's the Clean Water Act and I think also the Clean Air Act are unique in the sense that they have um, a criminal penalty provision. And they they do there is an an issue now about uh, there, I should say there's a split in the courts about how you apply that what the standards yeah. are what you know what kind of things you have to have in order to meet those and you know, come up to that kind of criminal penalty liability. So so what are the arguments briefly for and against having potential criminal liability in accidents like this? I mean, do you, do you have that kind of? Well, the, the, I think the I think the rationale of having a criminal liability component for things like clean air and clean water is because it's in, it has the implication of affecting humans. It's a public welfare type of concept. So that if you if you, so you want to add another layer of responsibility to make sure people are being very very careful because it has the implication of very much harming the public through either you know air pollution problems or water problems. Grace mentioned earlier another solution that, that's been proposed, and we talked about it just slightly, uh, charging mining companies operating now a reclamation fee. What exactly would that do? Well, there's, there's a, the, the fee would – you'd have to uh, figure out how to assess it, you know, what, you know, what the percentage is and how you would uh, apply it based on – I should say it would be on mining companies that are doing business today. Um, so it would just be for existing mining operations. And it would be used. It would be created. You would create a fund that would be used specifically for the cleanup of these orphan, abandoned hard rock mining sites. Couldn't that be seen as a tax, though? Essentially, I mean, I don't know if is that 
a thought? Well, it, it you know, what one person's tax is another person's royalty or another person's fee. So, I mean, it, it can matter on how you describe it, you know, for legal purposes and the like, but the concept is still the same. And it just goes to show the legal tangles that you can get into when talking about something like this. And the kinds of obstacles and objections and difficulties in passing something for that reason. You've worked with uh, exclusively for Democrats on this issue of trying to clean up old mines in the West. Uh, bills this year, though, have come from both Republicans and Democrats. But given that nothing has passed in, essentially in decades, to what extent is this a partisan issue? I do not think it's partisan. I, I, I don't think it's partisan in the political sense of Republican and Democrat. I think it's more about the interest groups, I would say, the 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 positions of the industry, the mining industry, the positions of the conservation community. in so terms lobbyists? of Lobbyists, I would say, in terms of what they're willing to accept. They have, they have had in the past a very much influence in seeing something get stopped or, or you know, move through Congress um, based upon their own particular values of what that particular solution might harbor for them. So you've brought people together at the Keystone Center. You have environmentalists, representatives of the mining industry, uh, Rivershed groups, staffers from congressional and Senate offices, state regulators, all all together at this table. And that's what the Keystone Center really shines at. So do, do you lock everyone in a room and say, come up with a solution? I'll be back in two days. I, I wish we could do that. Um, it does require – it takes them being willing to come to the table. It takes them willing to do the give and take that's required when you try to reach a consensus solution. And I will say that what we are looking at is to find another way um, other than the historic uh, issues of creating a Good Samaritan permit under the Clean Water Act because, again, those – those issues, those those obstacles still remain, um, uh, in my view. So there may be another third path that we would like to explore and we're hoping to explore with this Keystone uh, Policy Center Working Group. And it, it's really primarily, without getting too much into the details, it's primarily using Superfund, mm-hmm. but not creating Superfund sites. The Superfund law is flexible enough that I think it could be applicable to this situation and cover volunteers and protect them and shield them from long-term liability even though they weren't you – know, because they were not responsible. So briefly, how does the state fit into all of this? What more could they be doing? Well, the state could be a good Samaritan. The state could be an entity that could actually come to a site and help clean it up. However, they face the same kinds of legal liabilities that uh, a, a private good Samaritan might face or a watershed group. So the state is hampered – in the same way that those other folks are, unless and until we can change the law federally. Considering everything we've talked about, are you still hopeful the Gold King mine spill and those images of a river turning orangey-yellow will spur people to make change, or, or do you think it's going to take something else? I mean, that's a good question, mostly because, again, I think that the um, difficulties in terms of solving this, and I think, again, it has to be solved statutorily through new laws, those arguments, debates, value systems that people hold still exist. So I, it's hard for me. I had hoped that, again, the Gold King spill would be enough of a visible uh, big deal mm-hmm. that it would cause people to rethink that. But that fades very quickly. Um, and that's why I'm a little nervous that we're back to the same old uh, pot, you know, proposals that I think get bogged down in those kinds of debates and value judgments. Doug, thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me. 
Doug Young is Senior Policy Director at the Keystone Policy Center. We talked about abandoned mines in the West, marking one year since the Gold King mine spill in southwestern Colorado when a section of the Animus River turned yellow. Just ahead, how one Colorado author is rewriting werewolf mythology. You got that right, werewolf mythology. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. When you think of an angst-filled teen werewolf, maybe this comes to mind. You need to hear the truth, Bella. Understand all your options. And you need to know that I'm in love with you. And I want you to choose me instead of him. That's a scene from the movie Twilight Eclipse, where werewolf Jacob pines for his true love, Bella. In other films, werewolves are much more ruthless. Here's a clip from the trailer of 2010's The Wolfman. I'm a monster. I will kill all of you! In his new book, Mongrels, Boulder author Stephen Graham Jones introduces us to his version of the werewolf, much less Hollywood killer and much more nuanced. Uh, Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Your book revolves around a boy whose family lives in poverty on the edge of normal society, and it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that they're they're all werewolves. Uh, and your narrator is w- waiting, and he's yearning to transform into this beast. Apparently, that's something you grow into. Uh, his grandfather and uncle are rooting for him. His aunt, not so much. Why did you want this conflict of excitement and dread? The kid, the narrator, who is waiting to become a werewolf, of course, he wants the excitement. He wants to run around and eat whatever he wants and be faster than cars and everything. But his aunt understands that this will kick him out of society, more or less. He won't be able to hold down a steady job or anything. So she she sees it as a curse. The, the, the narrator's uncle sees it as a blessing. And he's kind of caught between those two. And that this is an interesting point of the book is that you talk about living on the edge of society, you know, not having clothes that fit, you know, always having to steal cars, uh, you know, what to do for dinner, parent-teacher conferences. Mm-hmm. That's such a different look, I think, for werewolves than I'm used to. Yeah, what I wanted to do with mongrels is I wanted to create a creature, a werewolf I could believe in. And for me to believe in a werewolf, I need to understand how that werewolf gets through the day. It's not just all about fighting a vampire on top of a building. You know, it's it's about trying to find genes that you won't rip through. Your narrator is an unnamed boy uh, who you follow through adolescence. Why not give him a name? You know, I wish I had a great reason for this. My big my only excuse is that I forgot to do it for about 80 pages, and then it was, <laughs> then, then it was too late. Right? He was just he was like, you just didn't have a name for him. <laughs> yeah, they got yeah. too far on the book, and you're like, all right. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Since, since sometimes the narrator calls himself, you know, things like the vampire when he's in a mm-hmm. Halloween costume, or the mm-hmm. reporter when he's doing a book report, or the criminal when his family is on the run with, from the law, what's your reasoning behind that? Was that placeholders for the name? Or? It, it was placeholders for the name, and also I found that the way that this book is structured with long chapters that cover like they jump ahead two years or something that 
when the tail of one long chapter touches the front of another chapter, they kind of cling together and the reader asks what's going on here. So I found that I could pad those with these little bitty flash fictions where the narrator becomes the investigator, the mechanic, and, and all these different identities. And, you know, all those identities he tries on, that's exactly what we all do. That's what I was doing when I was 12 years old. When I was 12, I was a skater for two weeks i'd be a cowboy for two weeks i'd be a rock climber for two weeks you're trying on different hats you know and um i mean i was in west texas so there's no mountains there's no no concrete but um you, you try it out you know you, you want to be different people well and, and i read during during your youth in an article i read that you bounced from town to town like you said and you took mm-hmm. up st- a strange hobby of collecting names oh i did yeah my mom my mom would let me edit my school records between schools because we carried them with us back then. And so they weren't transferred by computer. Yeah, they weren't. Yeah. yeah, so I would I would become different names for different schools. But my, my favorite was Alan. I like to be Alan, A-L-A-N. But I found that I'm really poor at responding to other names than my own. <laughs> so. <laughs> so you'd make up a name, yeah, and then yeah. you'd get to respond to that one. Yeah, well, yeah. How many names did you come up with? Oh, man, it's probably just three or four. And I had... had Lots of different last names, too. But, yeah, I always wanted to be somebody different. And I, th- I really think that's kind of where I started writing fiction, really, where I started coming up with different characters to plug into different situations. And do you think your your character, the, the boy, mm-hmm. does he want to be something different as well? He does. Well, he wants to He wants to be his uncle so badly. And um, that, that when I was growing up, I wanted to be my uncle so badly as well, definitely. And, yeah, I went so far as, you know, he had long hair and... So when I was five years old, I went into the utility and stole my grandma's scissors and cut my hair into like a triangle on my forehead so it looked like I had long hair like him, you know? (laughs) Um, But I I think that uh, we all, when we're kids, we find somebody to model ourselves after, more or less. How much of your life, then, is reflected in this book? Oh, this is really autobiographical for me. Really? Um, Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, I used to try to be a werewolf. I tried all the tricks I could find. None of them seemed to work. And so now, you know, 30, 40 years later, I decided if I'm not going to see a werewolf, then I'm just going to redefine werewolf such that it's my family. You know, why did you choose the thriller horror style to tell this type of coming of age story? Um, because I like to look at werewolves, I think. It's just really as simple as that. Um, for a long time, I've been kind of maintaining two identities as a writer. I've been doing like a literary track mm-hmm. and a horror track, I guess. And so Mongrels brings both of those together for me. It's it's me being able to stitch myself back into a single person instead of two tracks. Two tracks. And you've written 20, 20 plus books, I think. Yeah. 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 And, and, and how many of them are horror? Oh, probably 40, 50% at least. Yeah. yeah. And while this book has plenty of humor with wisecracking Uncle Darren, mm-hmm. the, the gruff truck driving cop killing werewolf uh, who loves wine coolers, I found mm-hmm. that to be interesting. <laughs> it's also pretty violent at times. Uh, from the book, quote, people say werewolves are animals, but they're wrong. We're so much worse. We're people, but with claws, with teeth, with lungs that can go for two days, legs that can eat up counties. How is that so much worse? How is it so much worse than than what? Than being an animal or being Oh, yeah. um because what's bad is if you have all these animal tools but you have a, a a mind in there of a person. Um I think it's kind of good that we people have these puny little fingers and these flat teeth because we can only do so much damage. But um but you had lungs or you know the claws oh, no. and the teeth and yeah. everything and you become a a machine. Yeah. You said you love werewolves and you've had this fascination. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite werewolf movie? I do. I like Ginger Snaps a lot from 2000, I guess. Never heard of that movie. Oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. It's um, 
two it's a couple of sisters going through adolescence and one of them is becoming a werewolf and they have to deal with that and things go awry as they do. Does it follow the same track of your book, kind of a different look at werewolves than the, the normal track? It, it is a different look at werewolves, yes. Yeah. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Boulder author Stephen Graham Jones. His new book is called Mongrels. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll dive into the mythology of werewolves. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel, and I'm speaking with Boulder author Stephen Graham Jones. His new book is called Mongrels. Uh, In your book, werewolves don't need a full moon to transform, but silver is still their kryptonite. Why keep some parts of the mythology and not the others? Some parts make sense to me, really. Um, Silver is antimicrobial. It's, you know, helpful against infections. And I thought it might help against werewolf infection. Um, The moon has never made sense to me because... If a full moon triggers a transformation, does a half moon just make one of your arms wolf out? <laughs> and and really, I can find no difference except for intensity between sunlight and moonlight. So uh, it seems like if the moon is going to transform you, the sun would do that double fast. You, you know? seem to have really uh, invested some time in, in learning this mythology. I have. I've been thinking about werewolves nonstop pretty much since I was 12 years old. So what other aspects of the mythology don't work for you? Um, what don't? I don't. A lot of werewolves I see and read don't adhere to conservation of mass. You'll see a 160-pound woman transform into a 300-pound werewolf, and I can't figure out where those other 140 pounds come from or where it goes when she transforms back. I want to talk about the transformation, but I want you to read a passage right. from your book. Uh, it should be at the top there. Uh, it's a pivotal scene when you, when you see the family change into werewolves or start to change. Here goes. He tried to sidestep past her for the house, for clothes, for a wine cooler, but Libby hauled him back, and because I was close enough, I heard one of them growling way down in their chest, a serious growl. It made me smaller in my own body, but I couldn't look away. Darren's skin was jumping on his chest now. It was Grandpa, rising up in his son. What I was seeing was Grandpa as a young man, itching to roam, to fight, to run down his dinner night after night because his knees were going to last forever, because his teeth would always be strong, because his skin would never be wax paper, because 55 years old was a lifetime away, because werewolves, they live forever. And then the smell came, the smell that's probably what birth smells like, like a body turned inside out, a body turning inside out. We've seen werewolves transform in movies. In Twilight, they run naked and materialize into a full-on wolf. Uh, In some horror films, it's an agonizingly graphic depiction with bones breaking, screams, hair spouting out. What was your idea for the transformation? Because, of course, it's key to any werewolf story. It is key. The transformation is so key to werewolf mythology, lore, everything. Um, My idea was that it must hurt. You've got to pay a price to get these claws, these teeth, this speed, these instincts, this sense of smell. Um, you, you learn to adjust to it as you go on with your life. Like after a few years, it hurts, but it doesn't hurt quite as bad. But, um, I'm not a fan of those werewolves that are running in a field and they jump in the air and they land as a wolf. That seems like just way too easy for me. And, um, also my werewolves, when they transform, you know, I I was saying, how does a 160-pound woman become a 300-pound werewolf? That can't happen. So my 160-pound woman becomes a 160-pound werewolf, but actually she becomes like a 157-pound werewolf because 
the, that process of growing a new skull, growing a new mouth of teeth, growing a body of hair, just changing your whole body around like that burns a lot of your calories. You know, you, you come out of the transformation just ravenous, having to eat immediately or you're going to die. There's another bit in the book where he talks about eating French fries. Now, those are bad calories and how <laughs> if you run and eat French fries, you transform and you're not going to have anything left. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And also you get addicted to what's associated with French fries, which is people eating French fries. And once you start getting into eating people, then sure enough, you get the hunters after you. You're Native American, mm-hmm. and you have a pretty high profile in the Native American literary community. Mm-hmm. How does your own heritage play into this book? Um, you know, I think these werewolves, they're watched in convenience stores the same way I am watched, really. Mm-hmm. Um, when I walk into um, somewhere, I can feel the eyes on me as I'm scoping down the, the tool aisle or the candy bar aisle or something. And that's how it is for the werewolves, too. And so... Uh, that that's kind of how I was able to invest them with reality, uh, for me anyways. So it's not a, a 50-50 thing, like, you know, the werewolf is an Indian, but in the sense that the ideals and the things like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, and these werewolves, they, they live in a lot of the same places that American Indians tend to live, you know? The American Southwest is one yeah. of those bookers, yeah. yeah. What uh, role, if any, do werewolves or shape-shifting creatures play in Native American culture? Um, there's, there's lots of shape-shifting going on. As far as my own culture, Blackfeet, I don't know any of the stories that really pertain to mongrels. I didn't, I didn't use anything directly for mongrels. So, but, but you've learned of the stories and you've, you've followed yeah. them. And yeah. As, as you move through this story, I, I think there's definitely a change in the narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about it without giving away, of course, the ending, mm-hmm. his, his transformation. You see him as a boy, as, mm-hmm. as an adolescent, mm-hmm. but he's always on the run. He's always moving to the next place with, with mm-hmm. his family. That, but that doesn't change his desire to be a werewolf. No, it doesn't. And, you know, what he finally um, comes to learn, I don't think I'm spoiling it too much, is that where being a werewolf is not about do I have claws, do I have teeth? It's about how do I feel inside? Who am I in, in my own head, in my own heart, you know? And that's what you've got to discover about whoever you are. I mean, it's not just, this doesn't just hold for werewolves. It holds for all of us, I think. In terms of, of future writing, are you going to put werewolves away? Is this done for now, or are you going to bring them back out? And No, I'll keep writing about werewolves, novels, stories, who knows, comic books. But, yeah, I'll definitely keep writing werewolves. I, I mean, I write my next novel is probably going to be a big crime novel in Texas with no werewolves in it at all. But... Werewolves are always my touchstone. I come back to them over and over. I'm curious to hear what draws you to the the often darker side of humanity as a writer. Because it's not all you do, but it seems to be a majority of what you do. You know, I I wish I had a straight answer for that other than that I'm just wired that way. But, um, I mean, I know, like, where horror starts for me. It starts with um, when I'm, I'm six years old, sleeping on my grandma's floor out in the country where we lived. And... My aunt and uncle, who were living in a little trailer off on the edge of the property, they come knocking on the door two in the morning. And they say, hey, Stevie, can we come sleep on the floor with you? And um, I say, sure, but why for? And they say, we just saw Halloween at the drive-in, and we can't sleep in our trailer anymore. And so they came to you? They came. Well, they came to sleep on the floor with me in my grandma's house to be safe. But I so distinctly remember holding the door open for them and looking past them into the darkness, the blackness of the pasture, and thinking, what can make these huge titans of people be so scared they have to come sleep on the floor with me? And I think ever since then, I've been thinking about horror. I've been fascinated with it. And final question briefly, do you, do you, uh, do you get afraid still by movies, horror movies? I get terrified. I get so terrified. Thanks for joining me. 
Thank you. Boulder author Stephen Graham Jones. His new book is called Mongrels. You can read an excerpt at CPRnews.org. And that's our show for this Friday. Thanks to our audio engineers, Brady McNellis and Michael Hughes, my director, Stephanie Wolf, producers, Rachel Estabrook, Anthony Cotton, Andrew Dukakis, and Michelle P. Fulcher. Our executive editor is Ryan Warner. Follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters or on Facebook, CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great weekend. Thank you.